0: Thank you, church body. Grab a seat, and we'll get to God's Word this morning. And if you would, turn in your Bibles to Acts to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. As you do that, um, there's a lot of celebration in regards to bringing on new members and the joy of that this morning, we wanted to reflect that in Jeff's prayer, but I also want to bring um, to your attention, most of you know, uh, Rhonda Rogers' mother uh, passed away this week in her 90s, um, and her funeral was very sweet yesterday, a celebration of her life. But we'll be, be praying for the Rogers family and for Rhonda. Um, and also, uh, Dan and Nadia Williams had a miscarriage this week, and I know they're here this morning, but um, please keep them in your prayers. Um. Yeah, that uh, they would feel loved by this church body, but most of all loved by their Savior. And as they grapple with severe mercy and providence of God, um, in light of that, would you would you pray with me as then we'll get to God's Word together, Lord Jesus? God, we thank you here. This beautiful truth that our suffering. Our suffering in this world, Lord, is never a punishment for our sin. And so when we ask the questions why, the answer doesn't have to be that I fell short. And so, gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you that because of the righteousness of Jesus, our friends who are suffering this week, and there are, I mentioned a few, but there are others in this room that, Lord, they would run to you, they would run past the veil, the torn veil, and into your presence and into your welcoming arms, and they would experience and receive both refreshments and healing. Lord, that, that, that journey of healing can be very long. So, gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that your church, that you have not just given us people that we randomly bump into, but you've given us a church, people with whom will walk with us through the long and often difficult and dark journey of healing. So God, I pray that you would bind wounds, emotional and physical, that are in this room this morning. That you would care for these families. Lord, I in particular think of Rhonda and Dan and Nadia and their family um, as just those who we know very clearly their suffering and hardship this week. That Lord, you would be so gracious to them. That, Lord, you would be tender to them in these days. That they would hear the voice of God whispering over them that you are my beloved, as Chris said this morning. That they would hear you saying that they are your child. And that they are not alone. And I pray that your church would then be the hands and feet to be a visible sign of your presence with them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 3, turn in your Bibles, we'll read the entirety of the chapter as we get back into our exposition of the book of Acts, which is a continuation of the gospel of Luke of sorts, where he's continuing to share about all that God is doing in this world, as Christ Jesus is doing, continue to work to bring the gospel to bear in this world. And we got through the first two chapters in the fall, so we didn't get far. And so this morning, though, we're going to pick up pace as we come out. The first two chapters of Acts kind of set the stage, and so you have to chip away at it, and now we'll be able to pick up pace and take some larger chunks together during our time in the coming weeks and months. Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 26. Hear God's word. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to have received something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet... Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses." And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out Um, spoken from Samuel, and those who came after him also proclaimed these days: You are the son of the pro- sons of the prophets, and of the covenant of that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raising, raised up His servant, sent Him to you first to bless you by turning every, every one of you from your wickedness. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible Word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the Word of our God. May it stand forever. Well, things fall apart, don't they? They have a tendency to do that. Especially if you're you're someone of another generation, an older generation than me, right? They just don't make them like they used to. Things especially fall apart today. My kids' toys fall apart. Like, at an unbelievable rate, I had someone come in the other day and they were complaining. They were like, our kids get these toys and they literally break on the way home and they just become something for me to step on. That's, that's things break. Don't they fall apart? Cancer, cancer is our bodies falling apart, right? Our bodies fall apart. The difficult part of life. Right right as you get in your 20s and maybe early 30s, you're saying, I'm feeling pretty good. And then it all, all goes down the pooper pretty quickly, doesn't it? I, I started to really like red onions recently. Finally, I could enjoy the love of red onions. And then, about a year after I started liking red onions, they gave me indigestion every time I ate them. Your body falls apart. It's called the law of entropy, the law of entropy, where things work go from order to disorder. It's easier to ruin things, right, than for things to get cleaned up. <laughs> Just go and like you know clean your kid's room. It takes you an hour, and then to, for them to destroy it, it takes what? 45 seconds. It's easier to ruin things to get it to clean Air and water gets polluted. It's easier to foul up a shoreline than it is to clean it. You can foul up a shoreline through one leak from a, a gas tanker, and it takes a matter of days, and it takes years to clean up that shoreline. Getting AIDS from a dirty needle seems it's rather quick, but it cannot be fixed with simply by sticking a clean needle in your arm. Things don't move back in that direction. The law of entropy at least not without great effort. We can, we can apply the best of medicine. We can, we can give people new hearts, new lungs, artificial skin, fake hips and shoulders and knees, and wonders of wonders. We can give people new hair. But it is all just a little delaying game, delaying what is the inevitable, that we are falling apart. So let me ask you, if you see a lame man walking, it should get your attention, Right? you see a lame man running around dancing, that means that things have been reversed, that there is a shift in the direction of the way things are going. It's an aberration. It's a reversal. When you see a lame man walking, you should say, what's up with that? Just like they did in the text. We know that guy. That guy's been sitting here for 40 years, and now he's running and leaping and praising God. You know the old saying? When you see a turtle on a fence post, you know what? It didn't get there by itself. And when you see a lame man walking, you know he didn't get that way all by himself. In much the same way, this is how miracles work. When the natural order of things is shifted, you know that somebody has intervened. Somebody from outside the system has intervened to bring healing. When you see a lame man walking, you know he didn't get up by himself. And so the crowd should ask, and this is what they ask, and it's the question that we should ask, what's up with that when you see a lame man walking? I'm going to give you six points this morning as we walk through this text, six points, and we'll go back and forth. First is what Jesus will do, and then second will be what our response should be. It's point one, will be about Jesus, the next one will be about what, us. Point three, about Jesus, the next one about us. And the first is this, is Peter is going to stand up here. In verses 1 through 11, we have this great account where Peter and John get to be a part of healing this lame man, this beggar who cannot walk, and they heal him, and he walks, and the people come crowding around Peter, and Peter says, I'm going to answer the question of what's up with that. I'm going to take this opportunity to show you what this miracle, what this healing means. And the first thing he tells the crowd is this is that Jesus is the true healer, not himself. Jesus is the true healer. Look at verses 12 and verses 16 with me. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people saying, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us as though by our own power of piety we have made him walk? Verse 16, and his name, by faith in his name, talking about Jesus, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and that the faith that is through Jesus has given this man the perfect health In the presence of you all. What is Peter saying? He's saying, Listen, you may think it's pretty swell that I got to be a part of that healing, and you may think that I'm powerful, but you're looking at the wrong place. The miracle of this healing points to the true healer, and the true healer is Jesus himself. Peter doesn't say stand up and walk as if he has the authority to do that. You know, that's what Jesus would do. When Jesus was living on earth and he would heal people, he would simply say, Hey, stand or hey, you should see, or hey, you rise from the dead. But Peter, what does Peter do? He says, stand up and walk, what? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. It is not by his own power and by his own authority that Peter heals this man, but the healer is Jesus himself. We have to understand that then they understood that names have power. That when you represent somebody as their ambassador, but you come in their name, that comes with great power. The only way we can kind of get this idea today is maybe through ambassadors. Or you know, we say, um, if you you're, had somebody who you knew was an in, you are going to a particular concert or something like that, you knew somebody who worked for the concert hall, they would say, hey, just mention my name, and you'll get in. That's good power right there, just to say my name. That's this idea with Jesus, that there's great power in the name of Jesus. And wherever we take his name, we have power goes with us. What does it say in the Great Commission that we looked at last week? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore. Go therefore. So Jesus has the power, and he is the true healer. Now, a couple things, a couple correctives here in regards to our thinking and the way this often gets misconstrued. First corrective is this, or first problem is using the name of Jesus isn't a matter of some kind of new magic mumbling a secret word or a kind of abracadabra, which will make things automatically happen. So if you go, you know, in the name of Jesus, would my kids stop dropping things? Or in the name of Jesus, make her go out with me? Or in the name of Jesus, would you know, heal this bunion? That doesn't, that's not what works. This is not magic, All right? People have actually made that mistake of thinking that simply by Jesus is just kind of this magical, you know, Harry Potter wand. They kind of w- wisp around, and they say it, the right words, and they will be able to, to heal people. The second misconception is this. There has to be faith. There has to be faith. And that is true. That's what they say. There has to be faith in the one who is seeking to wield the power of Jesus. But it is not dependent whether people are healed when we call ask God to heal somebody upon the strength or the perfection of our faith. It is in the power of the object of our faith. Those are two different things, right? There is faith in your faith, which is what we often have. It's Disney World theology. Just believe in your belief, and that's good enough. But that's not what it is. That's silliness. That's error. No, it's faith. The power power to heal comes in the object of our faith, which is Jesus Christ. Johnny Erickson Tada, who many of you may be familiar with, that she was a beautiful young woman. And one day in her late in her teen years, she dove off of a particular diving board and into a lake, and hit the bottom and broke her neck, and has been paralyzed ever since. And she would began to speak and became to be a very prominent Christian. And she would go to churches, and fairly well-meaning Christians would chase her out in the parking lot, and they would say something like this to her: "That if Johnny, if you just had enough faith, God would heal you. God would heal you." That is an aberration to our theology. That is an aberration, not to our theology, that's an aberration to the Bible's theology. That is not the the, the quality of your faith, it's the object of the one whom you're putting your faith and trust in. And so you say, God, I know you have the power to heal me. And so if you're not healing me, it means it's something for my good. The gospel is not, you believe hard enough and then you'll be healed. But God gives the healing. God is the power to heal. Ultimately, what we see here, though, in this healing in verses 1 through 10, is simply a raw display of the power of Jesus. So much so that the raw display of the power of Jesus, they can even work through broken and weak vessels like Peter and like John. With a simple verbal decree, by one who trusts in the power of Jesus, a man is changed forever with the words. That's the kind of power that he has. We are, and, and here's the thing: We're, for many of us who are good evangelical Christians and Bible Belt people, we are so accustomed to these stories that we it just kind of flies past. Oh, Jesus did another miracle! Yay for Jesus! Understand that when you come in contact with this kind of power, we should be amazed and fall on our feet, fall on our knees before Jesus, and say, "You are the omnipotent one." That you can, with a word, change somebody. This is what Peter experienced, right? That if you were to come, you were to see this kind of miracle by Jesus, this power, healing power displayed by him, you would just go, Jesus, I can't. I can't. You're you're gonna have to go away. This is Peter's response, right? When he saw Jesus in the boat saying, getting up and they're in a storm and he he says to the storm, peace, be still, and it stops. And what do the disciples do? They go, we were scared of the storm, but now we're more scared of you We're more scared of you because the person who can control the wind and the waves is the one truly to be feared. The power of Jesus. So that's what we see here, first and foremost. Peter tells them that this miracle, this miracle is the one that points to the true healer, the power of the true healer, Jesus himself. Second, Peter tells us and tells the crowd this, about this this healing, that we must recognize, this, this healing tells us about how we must recognize our deep need, our deeper need, in fact. Let's recognize our deeper need. The healing of the lame beggar points to the spiritual need of the crowd. They need healing. And this is what the beggar needs, right? It's interesting, the beggar, the beggar has various felt needs. He has very, what does he want from Peter and John? A little silver or gold, right? A cup of, co- a cup of coffee, a meal a 20 spots to get me through the day. Peter says, you're looking for something you think will help you, but I have something better. He had a healing for this man that is beyond simply his felt needs that moment in that day, but it was something greater, a fuller and deeper restoration. And virtually, this is how the miracles of Jesus and the miracles of the apostles works. Virtually every miracle story in the New Testament functions as a little parable. It's a parable of sorts, a living parable that points to a spiritual reality. It always points to some degree to the salvation of, not just not some physical healing that we need, but to the spiritual healing that we need. Go deeper, look deeper, these parables say, these healings say. What you want from me, Jesus says, is fine, but I have come to give you something better. I have, something, I have given you something better than simply being able to walk. You know, this is been preached on the, on the, um, on the, the account of uh, the man who was lowered through the roof a couple weeks ago. And what does Jesus say there? The man comes and it's clear that his need is he needs to be healed of his lameness to be able to walk. But what does Jesus say? He gives him something more than simply the ability to walk. He gives him what? Forgiveness of sins. He says, my son, your sins are forgiven. He goes deeper than simply the physical and felt needs of that man. He goes inward and into the soul, into the spiritual needs. So here's the question. What is this crowd need to be forgiven of? What's the inward spiritual need that they have? What, is, what needs to be healed in their life? Well, Peter tells us, doesn't he? At the very same time that he's telling us that Jesus is the healer, what does he tell us about the crowd? Between verses 12 and verses 16, where he makes it very clear who the healer is, there's verses 13, 14, and 15, and here's what it says. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of her fathers glorified his servant Jesus. And what did they do with him? whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. And to this we are witnesses. What is Peter calling them out for? He's saying, you think your need today is you think... Maybe this crowd is coming to Peter and they're saying, man... I have a kid who's lame. I have a kid who's who walks with a limp. I have a sickness. Would you heal me? That's the felt need. And Peter's going, no, no, no. You have a much bigger problem than that. You remember a few weeks ago, the one who has the power to heal, he came, he came, and you told him to go away, and not only that, you told him to die, and you put him on a cross. The need for healing. What's the need of healing? They need forgiveness. What do they need to ultimately? What is the ultimate deeper need that this crowd needs? They need restoration with God. They need reconciliation. The healer has come. The one who has the power to heal them has come, and they said, "We don't want you." And they spat upon him, and they crucified him. I'd say, I'd say there's a rift in that relationship, wouldn't you? I'd say that's a problem. The lame man could only wish for a few coins and a cup of coffee. He asks for a cup of coffee, but instead gets eternal life. The people come running to see another miracle, and what do they get? They get an offer of forgiveness, an offer of restoration. We come to Jesus, and we here's what we do. We say, Jesus, would you heal my marriage? And that's totally okay. But if that's all it is. It's got to be more than that. Jesus, heal my kids. Jesus, heal my vocation. Jesus, heal, heal my relationship with my parents. Jesus, heal my finances. Fix me, Jesus, fix it. Jesus says, I might fix it and I might not. I'm going to give you a restoration and a healing that is far deeper and is far more important. You see, Jesus says, I haven't just come to plug the leaks in your life and to fix a few little, do some aesthetic changes. He's not an interior decorator, Jesus is a full project construction manager. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says this, when we invite God into the shack of our lives, the hovel that we live in, we ask him to fix the sink or to clean out the gutters or fix a few shingles. And then God starts taking out walls and lifts the roof and puts an expansion on. And we go, God, I just want you to fix a few things. Well, this is, this is ridiculous. And he goes, I don't want to just fix you. I want to build you into a castle that gives glory and honor to me, that reflects my glory. Probably in your heart you're saying, if I could just walk, I would be happy. If my marriage would just be okay, then I'd be happy. If I could just finally get that job, if we could finally be over the hump financially, then I could be happy. Jesus is saying, no, no. Listen, this, we, we all know this. You see, What we see here is this man gets healed. But the crowd, they're all people who can walk. And yet they still need. Jesus is saying, I've come to meet your deepest need. Restoration with me. And that's where Peter goes next. Peter says, I've given you the bad news. You rejected the one healer who came to save you, to heal you of all of your wounds. You rejected him. But he says, I have good news. And that is this, is that Jesus is the complete restorer still. He's still the complete restorer. Verse 19, that's your third point. Verse 19, he says this, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Did you hear that? Peter's saying, Listen, there's a path of restoration. There's three there's three components to that path of restoration there's washing and there's refreshing and there's full restoration. Let me paint this picture for you, just to, for just a moment, on the path to help. If you were a little kid, if you're a little kid, and you've ever, ever gone camping with your parents, you're out in the you know the campground, out in kind of the wilderness area, and let's say you get to fight with your family and your parents, and you storm off into the woods. And you just kind of decide to take a walk. But well, this wasn't a really bright move because it was right around dusk and you begin—you get lost. You can't find your way back to the campground. And you end up having to spend the night and you end up going a couple days out in the wilderness, getting more and more and more lost. And you begin to experience heat from the sunburns. You're exhausted. You can't sleep. You're freezing at night. You're burning up during the day. You have no food, no water. You're dehydrated. You're famished. You're completely lost. You decide to finally lay down under a rock to try to get some rest. And that's where they find you. Your family's been coming after you. They've been pursuing you. There's been a search party that has been formed, and they come and get you. And finally, when they find you, and when they call you and bring you home, they bring you back out of the wilderness, and they fly you in the helicopter to the hospital, what are the things they're going to do? Well, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to wash you, aren't they? They're going to wash all your wounds off. They're going to tear for your skin. They're going to make sure that you're okay. They're going to wash you. Then they're going to refresh you, right? They're going to give you food and water. They're going to stick an IV in your veins so that you're not dehydrated. And then finally, what's going to get to happen? Finally, one day, you'll be able to go home. And you'll be finally restored to your family, into your own bed, and to your household, which when you were out in the wilderness, you weren't sure you were ever going to see again. That's what Jesus is offering here. You see, the, this is unbelievable grace. Unbelievable grace. That Jesus, this is so cliche, but I'll, I'll, it's a word from our, from our culture, but I'll say it this way. It's, Jesus is, is a God of second chances. They've rejected him. He came with healing in his hands, and he healed lames, the lame men, and the beggars, and the blind, and the dead. And they said, this is really cool. And then what do they do? They put him to death. And yet, and yet, he sends his apostles to say, you rejected me. You rejected me. But Israel, oh Israel. Oh Israel, I've come to restore you. I've come to put you on a path of restoration. So what does he say? There are three steps there, as we just talked about. First, he washes them. What you say? It says, "Your sins may be blotted out. What is that? That is forgiveness. That is that all the things that are necessary for your reconciliation with God happen through Jesus. that He forgives your sins your sins are blotted out. The word there for, for blotted out is this Greek word, exalepho, which means to wash off. It's actually this term that they would have used about when they, when they wrote back then on papyrus and the, the pens that they used didn't have acid in them like our pen. Our pens have acid in them in such that it bites into the paper. Or if you were to use a papyrus, it would bite into the papyrus. But because it wouldn't get into that papyrus very well, you could, if you didn't let it dry too long, you could simply wipe the ink right off. Think like a dry erase board. You could simply just wash it away. And that's the image that's being given here, that your sins would be blotted out. They simply are washed out. The same reference is used in the book of Revelation, both by God when it says that he will wash away our tears. He will simply wipe them away. But not only that, but it also says that Christ, it says, at the end of all days, despite all your sin, will refuse to wash your name off of the Lamb's book of life. Your sins will be washed away, but not your name. Forgiveness is what we need. Forgiveness is what we need for restoration and healing in our relationship with God, and that's what He comes to provide. A director of a large mental institution in England once told John Stott, John Stott, who's one of the most famous evangelicals of the twenty first century, of the twentieth century, excuse me, he said this to John Stott. He said, "If I could send half of my patients home tomorrow." half of my mental patients home tomorrow if they can only find forgiveness. The healing, the deepest healing that you need, you may have physical problems, you may have financial problems, but your biggest problem is you need forgiveness. And that's what Jesus provides. Second, he offers refreshment, doesn't he? He provides refreshment. Many of us go through the, through the Christian life feeling this, that we are kind of stale. But if you've, if you've had the experience of very long of a Christian, hopefully you've experienced refreshment in your walk with God. You've had times of staleness in which your walk just seemed like it got to grow rote, but God does something. Maybe you go on a conference, and God's Spirit washes in an amazing way. Maybe you experience forgiveness in such a way that poignantly that you say, oh, my goodness, Lord, I, I'm in love with you again. You experience the joy of your salvation. There's one of my favorite songs of all time, and I, I think about it all, all the time, is a song by Michael Card. And the song is entitled, Michael Card is like somebody, you guys wouldn't have known who Michael Card is. but Michael Card is a, he's a singer, poet, and songwriter. And he's somebody my parents would have listened to when they were my age. But because I grew up in that kind of whole, like, you know, home, I, I grew up listening to Michael Card and Keith Green and like Jesus Movement people from the 70s. And so I listened to Michael Card and he had this great song, Joy in the Journey. He had this great line that said this, there's a joy in the journey. There's a love we can, a light we can love on the way. There's freedom and gladness in Jesus. What he's saying is this. The journey is, he talks about in the song, the journey is very, very hard. And sometimes you'll feel parched. But there is a joy within the midst of that journey that you can experience. And guess what, brothers and sisters, we come to experience it today. Refreshment. The food of the word. The sweetness of experiencing the love of God the Father. I hope you've known times times where the gospel has become more real to you and refreshed your soul in the midst of this weary journey. God promises refreshment for us. Lastly, he also promises full restoration. Verse 20 and 21. So he promises that you're washing, he promises refreshment, and he promises full restoration. Verse 20 and 21, it says this, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. What's Peter saying there? He's saying not only if you'll repent of your sins, not only will you receive forgiveness, but you'll receive refreshment for the journey, but at the end of the journey, you'll be restored fully and finally to God, and not just you, but all creation. All things will be restored. You see, if, if, it's interesting. If miracles were simply about showing that God is powerful, then, then Peter and John and Jesus, they would choose different miracles to do, Right? I mean, we would have far, far more light shows and like thunder and lightning in the Gospels. And yet when Jesus wants to show his power, what does he do? He raises people from the dead. He heals people. Why? Why such a kind of a physical display of power? Because miracles are always pointing to the end. Because Jesus has broken into the natural world from outside this natural world to show that I have come to reverse the order and one day I am gonna restore all things. I've come to heal the brokenhearted. I've come to heal your bodies. I've come to heal your souls. And so all miracles point to the end of all things when your bodies will be fully and finally healed. Some of you today need to hear that because your body has betrayed you and you are aching. Your soul is betraying you. Your mind has betrayed you. The miracle, the healing, the promise of God's gospel is that, listen, you may only, you're only going to experience four tastes of that heaven, refreshments, little tastes on your tongue of the future glory. But there will be a day when you'll feel you experience it fully and finally. Peter says it this way, gives us a great picture in verse 8, when the man is healed, what's it say he does? He leaps. He stood and began to walking, and he entered the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. This is actually a description that we see in Isaiah thirty-five verse eight. Thirty-five verse eight, where it says, "This then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the mute will t- tongue will shout for joy." Isaiah thirty-five is describing what Peter is saying here. The prophets have foretold it. That's what all that language is about. The prophets they said there's a day coming, like Isaiah thirty-five, when the, the lame will leap for joy where everything that is broken in this world will be made right again. And to those who repent, not only will they experience forgiveness, not only will they experience refreshment, they they will experience the full and lasting and the permanent restoration. We see this in Isaiah, Isaac Watts' hymn, he's he's eliciting Isaiah 35 in his great hymn. He says this. He put in this very famous hymn, he said, "Hear, Hear him, ye deaf, is praisey dumb? Your loosened tongues employed. You blind see, and your lame leap for joy. Listen, that's such a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing to look forward to that day when your body will no longer deceive you. I, I had a there was a man in my church growing up named Sean Casey. Sean Sean was a um, engineer and a fairly good one, and then got a disease that eventually put him in a, a wheelchair. It made him lame. And Sean was the sweetest presence in our church. He had the best laugh. Sean would sit week in and week out seeking to worship. And I remember Sean got to the point where he couldn't even hold his body up hardly. And he would literally have to lay back and worship it. But you would see his hands just go like this as he worships. The only thing he could lift up. It's a beautiful thing. And I thought about this because I've heard another story about a friend who um, went to the funeral of another man who had been lame from all his life, or since his 20s, he'd been lame. And at the funeral brochure when this man died, at the very back of it, it had a picture of him from from his high school days. It was a picture where he was caught with him jumping in the air, his feet up behind him. And that was the back of the brochure. And that's what I think about when I think of Sean Casey. A day in which he will leap for joy. Listen, you may not be lame, but all the things that bind you to this broken world will be set free and you'll be fully restored. Fourth thing that Peter's trying to say, and pointing back to this healing and this miracle, he says this, he says, we gotta repent. If you wanna experience that, that forgiveness and that restoration, that refreshment, then you gotta repent. He says it very clearly right there at the beginning of verse 19. Repent therefore and turn back. That's essentially the quintessential definition of repentance. Repentance is turning away from sin and turning towards righteousness. What are they turning back from? Well, he goes on to say, turn from your rejection of failing to listen to the prophet of God. That's Jesus. Failing to receive the author of life. And in fact, not only does he call them to repent, but he brings down a warning. And yes, there are warnings in the New Testament. It says, Israel, oh Israel, you have been warned and you have been taught over and over again by the prophets. And finally, Jesus has come and you have still rejected him. Don't reject any longer. Don't reject. It says this in verse 22 Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. This is a warning, brothers and sisters. That Jesus came to bring healing in his first incarnation, but the second time he comes, he comes to bring judgments. That that restoration at the end of all things is to destroy all that have not followed him and to restore and to raise up all that have followed him. And that is the warning in this text. And what are we to turn to? We are to turn from our rejection of God and turn instead towards God. In fact, the language here that Peter uses is that we are to flee to God, to run to him, If you're in their shoes and Peter comes and tells you, hey, the God of all the universe, the only one who can heal you of all your diseases came and you rejected him, in fact, you put him on a cross and you would go, oh no, oh no. What's your only option? Your only option is this, to fall on your knees and plead and flee to that God and say, God, I am in need of your mercy. That's what Peter is calling them to do. But what does it look like practically maybe to do that? here's what I think it looks like practically. I think what it looks like practically to repent in this way is to do what the lame man did. What does he do after he's healed? He leaps. He praises God. And where does he go? He goes into the temple. He worships. You see, here's the faulty thought that many of us have is when we realize that we have been sinful in much the same way that the Israelites have been sinful, and we look at our lives and we go, I've been rejecting God my whole life, that God has offered me healing. I've been in church every single day. Or I've been, I have lived a completely a life apart from him, utterly and completely. And I'm finding about his law and how he is worthy of my life. And yet I've rejected him. And I, what do I do? I just want to stay away from him. But that's not what it says. It says, flee to God, turn to him. And that's what the lame man does. You notice, where is the lame man at the beginning of the story? He's outside the temple. Where is he at the end of the story? He's inside the temple. He's inside the temple. Repentance means you come to God in worship. That's what it means not to reject him anymore and what it means to flee to him. Flee to him in worship saying, God, you are holy. God, you are obedient where I am not obedient. God, you are loving where I have been unloving. So repent, repent. Could you repent this morning? Have you repented you say, God, I have nothing to offer. I've rejected you over and over again, but I come to you now on my knees to worship you. That's what Peter's calling them to do. Fifth point. Peter points to the price, the price of the payer. Jesus is the price. He pays the price for our healing. Verse 18 says this, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilleds interesting if you notice something about the miracles that Jesus, uh, whenever he, he, uh, he does miracles and when the apostles do miracles, it, it doesn't make them safe. You'd think he would, like doing miracles it would make everybody just go, oh, we love you. You're great. Let's hang out with you. But whenever they do miracles, it actually makes them very vulnerable to those who want them, they don't like them. Jesus heals Lazarus and raises Lazarus from the dead. What's the response of the Pharisees? He's got to die. <laughs> that guy's got to go. That guy's got to go. When Peter and John, it's interesting here, you know, and we're going to get into this next week because what we're going to look at is for the next, for the whole next section from chapters four through eight, what's going to happen in Acts is this is that God's people are going to enter into persecution and we're going to see how they respond to it. The reason, what happens next in response to this healing, you know what the leaders of Israel do, of Jerusalem do? Is they throw Peter and John in jail. You see, what happens when you do miracles like this, it actually makes you vulnerable, you can be threatened. When Jesus, when the woman with the flow of blood comes to Jesus and she touches him and she's healed, what happens? He said, I felt my power go out of me. In other words, what you're seeing here is that Jesus pays the price for our healing by becoming weak, by being able to be threatened. Whenever he heals somebody, miraculously heals somebody, Jesus becomes more weak. He becomes more threatened. He's endangered more. You remember when Jesus, Jesus is always saying, listen, I will not become invulnerable. And this is actually the temptation that Satan in, the, in when Jesus goes out into the, in the desert and the, the, the devil comes to him and Jesus is weak physically and the, the devil says, listen, turn that rock into bread or jump off this and the angels will protect you. What is he saying? Jesus, you become invulnerable. But what was Jesus' mission? To become vulnerable, to die for us, to become weak so we can pay the price so that we can be re- restored to God. In the same way Jesus decides to become weak, he becomes vulnerable Jesus becomes beatable. He becomes crucifiable, right? He becomes spearable. This is the price that had to be paid. You see, the beauty of the gospel is this, is that God himself became weak so that you, the weakest of the world, might become strong. That God took on wounds so that you who are wounded may be bound up again. Jesus was, was pushed away from the Father so that you might be restored. Jesus went to the cross, and what does he experience? Does he experience refreshment on the cross? No, he gets vinegar on the cross so that you might re- experience the refreshment of the Holy Spirit. That's the price that he pays. It's the price that many men and women have paid in order to make Jesus known. You know Jim Elliott? It's what missionaries do, they, get, they become spirable. This is your last point. We must bless. We must bless. Because of what Jesus has done, we must bless others. Verse 25, it's an interesting place. You are the sons of the prophets and the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. What is Peter saying there? He is quoting from Genesis 12, which is the time in which God comes to Abraham and he says, Listen, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to bless your family, but not so you can just be rich and healthy and happy all the time, but so that you can be a means of blessing to the world. When you see that Jesus paid the price for your healing, you become a healer. You become a healer. And this is the call. This is the call of Acts 3, that you would come to Jesus to be healed and that you would be sent out to the world to be a healer. Jim Elliot became spirable, right? You know, when Jim Elliot and his friends went to be uh, missionaries to the Alka Indians, did you know when they that, on that fateful day there were famous missionaries in the 1950s and they were, they were killed by the Alka Indians on this beach where they had been trying to come serve to these Indians who had never heard of the gospel who almost no one had ever had any contact with what was found when they found their bodies they found that they had their guns on them they it was a gun the, the Indians brought spears to a gunfight, but what did the missionaries do they kept their guns holstered. Why? Because in order to reach people with the gospel, you have to become vulnerable. You have to become spearable. You have to be willing to be wounded after you've been healed by God. Wounded by this world in order to be a means of healing for this world. So you're blessed to be a blessing. You're forgiven to forgive. You're restored to restored. And you're healed to reheal. So what does your marriage need today? For some of you, your marriage, God's given you forgiveness, and that's, this is the power you need. God's paid the price for your forgiveness. Jesus paid the price for your forgiveness, and you go forgive your spouse. Some of you need to go pursue a child who feels absent from you, because God pursued you. You have the power to do that. You need to enter into the broken places of this world. This is what happens. When people are healed by God, by Jesus, they get up. Peter's mother She's healed. What, how, what does she do? She jumps up and she starts serving people. And this is what God's church does. Did you know when one of the Boston bombers, when he was killed, when he was killed, it, was, it became almost nearly it became impossible, actually, seemingly impossible. His family began looking for a, a graveyard in which to bury him. And no municipality, no church would allow his body to be buried in their graveyard. So what happened? What, who intervened? A woman named Martha Mullen, a Christian. She paid for all the arrangements. She made sure there was a plot. NPR later interviewed her, and the interviewer said, you know how unpopular what you did is? What motivated you? And She said this, Jesus said to love your enemies, because I was once his enemy, and he loved me. They said, you realize that you have put yourself in the danger by getting involved in all this. I mean, some people want to kill you. She said, Jesus made it clear that the game of life is not about being comfortable. Some of you, God has restored you. He's healed you. And now, like in verse 25, he's calling you to go out and to be a healer. Where, where do Christians learn to be like that? Their Savior. Their Savior, who left his throne to heal us to refresh us, and ultimately to restore us. Let's pray. And if my elders and those serving could come forward to prepare for serving the Lord's Supper. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are not the God who left us. And as we've said in a cheesy way this morning, you're the God of not just of second chances, but of third and fourth and thousandth chances that even if we've been a people who have rejected you, you're still the God who comes and offers offers us full restoration. And so God, we come before your table this morning and we say, God, we are a needy people. God, there are ways day in and day out in which we reject you, in which we want nothing to do with you. And so God, we come in repentance as an act of worship, clinging to your table, saying, God, only by the body and blood of Jesus. Only by his price may I be healed. Only, I know by only by his price may I be restored to you. So Lord, I pray that our sense of sinfulness and our, our remembrance of our rejection with God would not keep us from the table, but in Lord, we would, we would come worshiping. That we, the people, the lame and the weak, would come dancing and singing and saying, look how great our God is. And receive you as a savior of our souls. And so Lord, we come to take up this bread and this cup and Lord, we set them aside, these simple elements, simple bread and simple juice that represent your body and your blood. But Lord, I pray that your spirit would intervene through them. That they would be the means of giving us grace this morning, of yes, refreshing our souls. There are those in this room who desperately need refreshing. They have tasted and seen, but it's been so long and so they long to taste of you again. God, would your spirit allow us by your grace to taste you and all of your love and all of your beauty and all of your goodness and all of your restorative healing power once again. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.